But what I really became interested in is the way that the border travels. It's a mobile thing or it's a, a mobile ensemble that is always inscribing these sort of inclusions and exclusions of people and spaces. And it does it through different techniques. Hi, this is Emily Holloway. You're listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast by the journal Urban Affairs Review. In this four-part series, we're approaching the city through its connections to human migration. This is a really ambitious and broad set of topics and questions. When you consider historical patterns of migration, the different ways that geography influences and shapes these patterns, the politics of migration policy, the role of immigrant communities in remaking cities, I could go on and on and on. So instead of attempting to be comprehensive or even representative, we're going to jump around a little bit. This four-part series features interviews with five different scholars who examine migration and urban space in different ways, like Andrew Baldwin. Uh, I'm a professor of human geography at Durham University in the United Kingdom. Durham University is in the northeast of England, just about um, 20 miles or so south of Newcastle, just to reference um, for your listeners. Um, the work that I do in, in the broadest sense is to try and develop a set of critical vocabularies for thinking about the relationship between climate change in the broadest sense and migration um, in the broadest sense. You heard at the top from Leslie Gross-Weirdson, a geographer. My name is Leslie Gross-Wurtzen. I'm a lecturer at Yale University in the Macmillan Center for International Studies. Um, particularly, I'm located in African Studies and Middle East Studies. And then I have a lot of other affiliations across campus, but particularly in the Center for Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration, and in Anthropology. Later in this episode, you'll hear some excerpts from my conversation with Deirdre Conlon and Nancy Heemstra who have been collaborating on an ambitious and vital project called Detention Economies for many years now. I am Nancy Heemstra, um, and I am an associate professor at Stony Brook University, a SUNY State University of New York school. Um, and I'm in the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Sure. So, hi, I'm uh, Deirdre Conlon, and I am an associate professor based at the University of Leeds in uh, England. In future episodes, you'll also hear from Dominic Vitiello, who discusses his 2022 book, Sanctuary City. Um, so, I'm Dominic Vitiello. I'm a professor of city planning and urban studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, for about two decades, most of my work has been with migrant communities in Philadelphia and other parts of the United States and, and Canada. And um, currently, I also do a lot of my work with um, migrants, mainly from North and West Africa, who are in Sicily and other parts of Southern Italy. Along with some really key insights on sanctuary cities in Europe, from UAR editorial board member David Kaufman. Hi everyone, uh, my name is uh, David Kaufman. I'm Assistant Professor of Spatial Development and Urban Policy at ETH Zurich. This is the Federal Technical University of Switzerland. I'm also Director of the Center Network City and Landscape and also the Deputy Director of the Institute for um, Spatial and Landscape Development, both at ETH Zurich.
and I'm an editorial board a member of the journal Urban Affairs Review. But for today, we'll start this wide-ranging set of conversations by exploring what the border is, how it moves, and how it shapes movement. These ideas also touch on a really important intellectual framework, mobility studies. The show notes have a great selection of readings to learn more about mobility studies. But to give you a little bit of background, Mobilities is a critical framework that examines movement of people, things, ideas, money, etc. It's an interdisciplinary approach, and although a lot of the early work is rooted in sociology, you can observe its impact across social scientific and humanistic disciplines, including geography, economics, history, and anthropology. Besides exploring social phenomena and problems through movement, Mobilities also examines just how movement can actually happen. Leslie Gross-Wertson's research looks at how these come together in the context of North African migration practices. So I describe, my, I describe this research project or the work that I'm doing right now as looking at the way that West and Central African migrants get stuck in Morocco as they travel from their home countries to Europe. And as I said before, the EU has invested a lot of money and political influence in getting Northern African countries like Morocco to contain um, these migrant people beyond European borders. And um, many of the people that come, that pass through Morocco are going to go maybe three routes. One is to take a boat um, often a Zodiac boat, an inflatable boat across the Mediterranean Sea to mainland Europe, or across the Atlantic Sea to the Canary Islands where they'll make an asylum claim, or to climb uh, the fences that separate Morocco from two Spanish enclaves that are adjacent to Moroccan territory, which are Melilla and Ceuta. And so those are the sites that get a lot of attention in the media for, for good reason. There's a lot of spectacular violence and death that, that happens there. Um, when migrant people want to try to cross the fence, they have to climb three six meter high fences topped with barbed wire. They're often beaten. People in the ocean, um, their boats frequently capsize and um, rescue is often delayed uh, deliberately by coast guards. So those are places where we see a lot of intensity. But what I really became interested in is the way that the border travels. It, it's a mobile thing or it's a, a mobile ensemble that is always inscribing these sort of inclusions and exclusions of people and spaces and it does it through different techniques and so in Morocco you have these spectacular sites of violence at the fences in the sea um, but you also have these less visible parts of the border which are particularly in urban areas. And this actually happened as a result of Morocco reforming its border policy in 2013 because of humanitarian outcry against the violences that are happening in these in, at the fence in the sea. So Morocco started having a policy of sort of official tolerance. You mentioned that parts of the border are in these urban areas and are actually physically pretty distant from the territorial borders of the country. How does this play out and, and how does it impact migrant individuals and communities? One of the ways that this played out is they would round people up and remove them from places where they might be able to take a boat or from camps that were near the, the fences in the north 
and bus them hundreds and hundreds of miles to the south and dump them in urban areas and urban centers. And once they were in these urban centers, they were pretty much left on their own. Um, and so Morocco has been given a lot of credit for not deporting everyone, not indefinitely detaining everyone in the way that, for example, the United States does, but rather just letting them get on with their lives in these urban spaces. But I really understood being with West and Central African migrants in these urban areas that this wasn't really about tolerance and it wasn't really about a humane way to continue to limit their mobility, but rather it was abandonment. Um, and it was an organized process that the state um, initiated as in, in order to, to fulfill its requirements um, to border for, to be the, the police officer or the border guard for Europe. So do you find that all of these migrants are intending to continue on to Europe? For some West and Central African migrants that have found themselves in Morocco, if they're able to find a way to generate money and to, to sustain themselves and sustain their loved ones back home, um, they'll, they'll, they will happily stay. So they don't have, I, I think in the media, a lot of times, particularly in European discourse, um, media discourse, there's this idea or this representation of Europe as El Dorado. And I never heard people say that. I, I did not hear people represent it that way. But there is a sense that Europe offers greater livelihood opportunities and um, social status advancement than Morocco does. And that I think that's I think that's true. So for a lot of migrant people, Europe is definitely their destination, but many of them are have been in Morocco at this point for, you know, a decade. A lot of the people that I'm that I knew best that I met during fieldwork between 2016 and 2018 had been there since I don't know 2014, 2013, and all of the women that I know, knew are still there and most of the men are still in Morocco. So whether or not they aspire to keep going to Europe, and I think many of them do, for many of them, Morocco is their de facto home. So countries like Morocco end up being the crossroads or like a buffer zone for migration. And they're kind of coerced into policing European migration. There's some resonance with migration in the Americas that seems super obvious here too. I think comparing what I, I kind of gloss as the American border, which by American, I don't mean the United States. I mean, North America, Central America, South America. So the American border and the Eurafrican border, which is what I work on, which just to unpack that for a minute is I think of as Europe or Southern Europe in particular, the Eastern Mediterranean, including Turkey and Northern Africa and pushing further into, into Southern Africa, into Central and Southern Africa. So I think of the American and your African borders as having a lot of commonalities in, in, in broad terms. I think a lot of the fine grainedness of it um, is quite different in some ways, but there are some really broad commonalities across them. And one really has to do with this idea of externalization, which is where these so-called destination places like the United States or the European Union is investing a lot more money and political influence in countries that are neighboring their border to contain these migrants outside of it. So Mexico has received tremendous 
investment from the United States, as well as tremendous you know, pressure from the United States to keep Central Americans outside of, you know, from crossing uh, the U.S.-Mexico border and containing now refugees and asylum seekers as well, who, you know, according to international law, should be allowed to cross a border to make an asylum claim. So that's happening in the U.S.-Mexico-Central America context in very much the same way that it's happening in the Euro-African context. So the European Union since the late 1990s has invested, you know, I mean, billions at the at this point of dollars in enlisting places like Turkey and Morocco and Libya in containing West and Central Africans or Central Africans um, and South Southern Africans away from Europe's border. So acting as this giant buffer zone and um, and it's not a coincidence that those have emerged basically simultaneously. Um, a lot of this is is because of information sharing, right? In the circulation of ex- policy experts, the circulation of policing experts, um, people are using the same tech, like Israeli um, defense tech has been repackaged for civil- so-called civilian use against asylum seekers and migrants. Other defense companies are doing the same thing. So there's a lot of this. these logics of this continental border or transcontinental border regime um, that are happening in both of those places because a lot of the actors are the same. And so that's one thing. The other thing is that a lot of the way that this can happen in both of these sites is through uh, the tightening of legal regimes against unauthorized migrants. So I'm where I'm from in Texas, crossing the border um, until the 1990s really was a misdemeanor. It wasn't imprisonable. It wasn't considered, you know, a crime. And it's only been in recent years that has become a serious, um, a serious crime and one that can get you deported. And then you also can't return to the United States, et cetera. And criminalization of migration has also been a major pressure point for the European Union on these other countries. So Morocco illegalized um, unauthorized entry and exit from the country in 2003, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia did shortly around that time as well. So these kind of legal regimes are similar as well. And also the way that smuggling has developed. Um, you know, as borders get harder and harder, it doesn't mean that people are able to stay in place because they're displaced because of war. They're displaced because of you know, dispossession because of economic disinvestment and the need to pursue livelihood. And this is true across all of these spaces that have been really ravaged by structural adjustment and before that colonialism. So we've definitely gotten to talk about borders quite a bit, but I wonder if we can maybe shift back to our earlier conversation on mobilities. You kind of talked a bit about how different migrant communities end up settling in cities in North Africa whether by choice or not, as they make their way north towards Europe. I know mobility studies touches on the connections that are made by diasporic communities and networks. Is this something that you observed or or learned about during your field work? I, I do think about the local communities that I knew in cities in Morocco as nested in these what I call migrant moral economies that are transnational in scope and are often anchored in cities and anchored in places where people find themselves either, as you said, way stations or where people have just found themselves stuck for longer amounts of time. And some of those are predictably sort of along the migration routes 
or in key destination cities where they're rejoin, you know, joining a sister or a partner or somebody else who's already gone before. Um, but there's really interesting connections between the Euro-African border and the American border. And one example that really hit home for me um, about that, well, two examples. One is not about migration, but it's about mobility. So I'm going to add it in there because it's so fascinating. So one is that one of the impacts of the U.S. war, uh, war on drugs in the Americas was that um, a lot of uh South American and Central American drug trade started being routed through the Sahel. And um, and a lot of the drugs move up to Europe through the same routes that migrants are taking. So it's interesting to think about how sort of these, you know, politics um, in the Americas uh, created these new pathways um, and professionalized routes, I guess, for people to travel along, you know, from, from West Africa to Europe. But the other direction um, is I was with a friend who has since made it to France and we were in Casablanca at the time and we got a text message from his good friend who is also from Guinea and had been deported from Morocco and saved money uh, and then flew to Ecuador and was now on La Besta. And he was taking the migration journey up um, from Central America up to um, the United States. And he actually had made it to San Antonio, which is where I'm from. So I was giving him my sister's phone number in case he needed anything. But it was really interesting to think about like how these networks are really creative and mobile and shifting all the time. And I wouldn't say that people maintain these networks or these communities or affiliations durably for extended, extended periods of time, but certainly they do mobilize them or enter into these relationships that span really the globe. And again, they're very centered in urban spaces. I think one of the more successful things that Morocco has done recently is to stop um, abandoning people or dumping people in big cities. And now they're dumping them in rural areas. And it is more successfully breaking down some of those networks because it's it's harder to make a living. It's harder to hustle even to travel through the country. Um, there aren't communities already established there. And so it's been a little bit more of a challenge. And what people do as soon as they get money is move back to a city. Could you say a little more about that? How, how do cities or urban spaces help to foster or, I don't know if nurture is the right word, but how do they have an effect on city? What role does mobilities play in that? So I, I would say, like, just to ground it a little bit, Moroccan cities are really being transformed by migrant and migrant people. And this is not just West and Central African migrants, but Morocco itself in the last 30 or 40 years is very much constituted by its expatriate, you know, or its migrant population that lives in Europe so much money comes in that builds the houses that, that we see, the huge housing boom, the cars that people drive, et cetera. And so our understanding of place and people's role in it, their identity really has, has I'm not going to say it has everything to do with mobility, but it has quite a lot to do with mobility. And so that's where that's really productive for me. So one thing that mobility has helped me think about 
is processes of race and subjectivation, right? Again, I keep saying this, but race race is an ensemble, it's relational, it's not just global, it's not just local, but it's these interactions and these flows. And so mobility, again, um, subverts this idea of what Lisa Malky called the National Geographic, that there's a certain kind of people that belong in a certain kind of space, and those are wedded together. And when you migrate away from that space, you're, you know, a fundamental part of who you are. Is is cut off. Um, that you know that can be really meaningful for diasporas, for example. But it also can be really limiting, and it and and inherently has to do with um, producing inclusion and exclusion, right? Like who belongs and who doesn't belongs has to do with are you in your place or are you a body out of place? So mobilities has really helped me think about how just those ideas of who you are, who your group is, where your group belongs, those move around and those interact with other ideas and clash. And it's a very much a politics. It's a struggle and it's something that's contingent. And so I think we need to think about ethnic identity, racial identity, gender identity, all of these things as very real, mattering very much, but also always contestable or contingent. And and it's kind of a weird thing to say, but mobility has really helped me understand that. And then the other thing that mobilities has helped me think about is the relationship between people's experience and the movement the experiences on the move and the movement of things. And so I think a lot about the movement of money and how that impacts how people move or don't move. I think about it in terms of the migration economy, the political economy of borders, um, the exchange of, you know, like we said, expertise on bordering or military tech and so on. Leslie pointed out how the border can move, that it's visible in spaces of enforcement, for example, which are not necessarily tied to territorial borders. They make significant claims about citizenship and belonging, and often do so through policing mechanisms or incarceration. Deirdre Conlin, who I spoke with alongside her collaborator, Nancy Heemstra, explores this roving border idea through their joint research on migrant detention facilities and economies. We, we wrote a, a piece for a, a special issue in um, territory politics and governments on polymorphous. The special issue theme was on polymorphous uh, borders. And in that article, we, what, what we wrote about were some of the webs of bureaucracy that operate in uh, immigration detention around the contracts and subcontracts that we have been uh, talking about here. So in in that sense, we do address the place of the border and the kind of materialization of the border within uh, within, uh, detention facilities and within the relations that sustain detention facilities. So it's not even just a kind of a physical movement of the border into another place or location in the northeast of the United States. It's about relations. So the border is a relation, right? Um, and I, I, I think that you know, when when we're thinking about the message that we want to convey in the book that we're we're working on, and we've alluded to some of the sort of messaging that that around sort of our conclusions, um, when it comes to thinking about ending uh, immigration detention and what that necessitates, what that requires, I think it also requires that we think about an anti-capitalist argument or anti-capitalist kind of movements 
that work across uh, borders at multiple scales because, you know, again, from an abolitionist framework, uh, if we're going to change a system of oppression and uh, inequality, then we have to address that at multiple scales across multiple borders. Can you help us understand what a detention economy is? How do you define it? What is the Detention Economies Project? Um, in, in short, it scrutinizes the financial webs and the relationships that are the lifeblood of U.S. Uh, detention system as sort of the empirical focus of our work, but also of uh, detention more more broadly. And to elaborate on that in a little bit more, more detail, our argument with the detention economies is that financial webs that are at the heart of the system extract value from immigrant detainees' bodies, morally infect public perceptions and policymaking around immigrants and immigration, and continue the spread of detention within and beyond uh, the United States. Nancy, can you share how you got into this project in the first place? Yeah, well, I mean, I can, uh, my interests or my, in, uh, how I came to this project um, similarly through my previous research project, which was my dissertation research, where I was in Ecuador and I ended up volunteering for um, a migrant assistant organization there. And what they needed, the biggest demand that an English speaker um, um, could do was trying to locate detained family members in U.S. immigration detention centers. Um, because, you know, it's, everything's just so uh, chaotic and disorganized um, that if somebody had a detained family member, it was kind of like they disappeared. So um, I spent a lot of time just calling detention centers and then talking to the family members um, and then also speaking to people once they had been deported to Ecuador. And I became really interested. This thing that kept coming up was that, um, you know, people had nothing in detention and they would be desperately trying to get in touch with family members, even in Ecuador, to send money so that they could buy things in detention, just food and, I mean, anything, right? Um, and, um, the, and there was also this one deportee that I interviewed had um, was talking about when he was on the plane being deported back to Ecuador. And this man spoke English. He had lived in the U.S. many, many years. and But he said that the guards on the plane didn't think that he could speak English. And so as they were getting off the plane in Ecuador, one of the guards said to people kind of jokingly in English, like, um, get off the plane and don't come back. And another guard said to that guard, it replied in English, he said, don't say that or we won't have work, right? Or we'll be out of a job. And so that really got me interested into like, uh, what is it that is being sustained here, right? There's kind of the whole discourse um, in uh, the media and by politicians about why um, we have these, these detention and deportation policies, why they're necessary, but what's really driving it? Right. So those kind of combined things, I think, pulled um, Deirdre and I together to, to think about, OK, how can we really drill down into the economy, the money um, and how that circulates just within within detention? Nancy and Deirdre brought up some really important elements to flesh out the discussion of mobilities and borders. 
particularly how capital plays a role in making and reproducing these circuits of migration and incarceration, and as a result, racial formations and identities, which we'll start exploring in another episode in this series. A really important part of that conversation is understanding the role that climate change plays in these dynamics. I spoke with Andrew Baldwin, who, with his collaborators Christian Froelich and Delph Roth, organized a special issue in Mobility's journal back in 2019 that addressed these overlaps and tensions head-on. That special issue was titled Anthropocene Mobilities, or from, what did we call it, from Climate Change Migration to Anthropocene Mobilities. And it was a set of papers that came out of a workshop in Hamburg that was organized by Delph and Christiana. Um, they are, I should add and underscore strongly, the sort of key movers in that um, special issue. Um, and I sort of tagged along for the ride. Um, but anyway, that special issue was really trying to um, open up a space to think about, um, you know, questions about human mobility in the broadest sense in relation to the Anthropocene in a kind of intellectual gesture that moves us away from what at the time felt like some kind of tired, stagnant debates around climate change and human migration, where people were were just sort of talking about the same things over and over again and and rehearsing all the same critiques. So the Anthropocene Mobilities uh, Workshop um, um, offered a, a, a chance to think afresh about some of these issues. Um... And the special issue itself, we kind of, we had all these amazing papers and we just weren't sure exactly where to position them, uh, which, you know, which journal to publish them in. Um, It just was, it just, we really weren't sure about this at all. And we thought, well, maybe Mobility's journal would be interested in this. And so we contacted them and they they were interested. Um, And that sort of put the onus on us to make a case for why what these papers, you know, had a place in the journal um, Mobilities. None of us, Delph, Cristiano, or myself, um, come out of that um, sociological tradition of Mobilities, um, the Mobilities paradigm. Um, but in the course of sort of arriving at that journal as a as a as a venue for the special issue, um, we started investigating a little bit more about Mobilities, and it became really clear to us that within that wider sort of framework of the mobilities paradigm, there was only a, a limited discussion around um, the Anthropocene, uh, mostly centered around the work of Bronjerzynski, um, working with some really interesting ideas around the planetary. So that was the, you know, the introduction to the special issue was very much about saying, look, here is a whole bunch of debates that have been going on on climate change and migration, which don't really deal with the concept of mobilities, but maybe they should on the one hand. And then on the other, here are, you know, here's this really interesting, fascinating, um, prolific field of mobilities um, research, the mobilities paradigm, that kind of really isn't engaging with climate change in the Anthropocene as perhaps it might be. So this, we sort of pitched the S special issue as a bringing together of these two worlds um, in the hopes that it might just sort of catalyze um, something. Um, so that's why I say that, you know, migration studies on the one hand is very different from mobility studies on the other. Migration studies really is about trying to, 
you know, come to an understanding of, of migration, the politics of migration, how migration is regulated. There's very often a transnational dimension to migration studies, not always. Whereas mobilities and the mobilities paradigm um, is much more interested in understanding how um, sociological phenomena, political phenomena, um, legal phenomena, spatial phenomena of various sorts is underpinned by human mobility. The sort of, the sort of intellectual move of mobility of the mobilities paradigm is to say that mobility is primary in the constitution of social relations. And so, can we can we, you know, build a kind of sociological political analysis that that recognizes uh, and foregrounds mobility? That's a really helpful distinction. And I'll note here for listeners that we included a link to the special issue that Andrew, Christian, and Delph organized in our show notes if you want to check it out. In our next episode, we'll continue this conversation with Andrew, Leslie, and our other guests to think through some of the ways that racism shapes and is shaped by migration and borders, and how these dynamics also end up changing urban spaces. So the figure of the climate migrant is a fully naturalized form of other, which is to say that it's dehistoricized, it doesn't have a kind of, it's a unique history, movement and mobility are a function of climate, which in this case is sort of, you know, a code for nature. Um, The figure of the climate refugee stroke climate migrant is often displaced from the category of the political. It is, a, it is a, a figure without political agency. You've been listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast by Urban Affairs Review. Special thanks to the Lindy Institute at Drexel University and the editors at UAR. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. This show was written, hosted, and produced by me, Emily Holloway. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, urbanaffairsreview.com, for more information about the journal and the show, and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. See you next time.